Would you love a king like that? A king to, uh, to ransom us from our slavery. A king that uh, brings joy, delivers us, delivers us from Satan's tyranny, that disperses the gloomy clouds of night, that uh, gives us victory over death. That's the king described in Psalm 72, the last prayer of David that uh, was read today. Uh, give the king your justice, O God, your righteousness to the royal son. Today we're going to talk about the royal son, the son of David, the only king and the only son that can fulfill everything that we've just sung about. So I'm going to read to you uh, from Second uh, Samuel uh, chapter 7, and, uh, but let's pray as we do that. Father, we thank you that... You are king over the universe, that this cosmos you designed as your temple to show forth the wonders of your glory. You designed this earth, Lord, uh, to be in Eden, a place there that we could dwell with you, that we could walk with you, that we could tend the land, uh, that we could uh, rejoice in your goodness and care that you've given us from your creation. But Father, we know that things are broken. And we do thank you, though, that even this day you've given us lips to praise you, ears to hear you, and minds to understand and believe you, hearts to love you, and feet to follow you, and hands to serve you. I pray now you would give us wills uh, to obey you as we hear your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's read together Second uh, Samuel uh, Chapter 7, it's in the Old Testament. Um, the sermon today is on, it says, it's just on two verses. So we should be out in about five minutes, I think. Two verses, that should be pretty quick. But I'm going to give you the context of those two verses, uh, which is the whole of Second uh, uh, Samuel chapter 7. And then we're going to go back to Genesis and forward to Revelation because the son of David is described all the way back from Eden all the way to Revelation. And 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7 is like a mountain by which we can look back into Eden, you'll see, and by which we can look forward into Revelation. People call it the mountaintop of the Old Testament as well. So we're going to look from the mountaintop, and I'm going to point you in different directions as well. So you'll need your Bibles open to do that. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go and do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved <clears throat> with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep 
that you should be my prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now, I don't know who your favorite Old Testament uh, individual is. Uh, it might be Moses or Abraham or Joseph, Esther or Elijah. Uh, for many, it's David. And it's interesting, isn't it, that in this season, as we sing songs, as we meditate on scripture, hear sermons, we don't hear much about Moses or Abraham, Joseph or Esther or Elijah. But we hear a lot about David. So David is key to the incarnation, to the coming of the Lord Jesus, and actually to who Jesus is. And actually, all the promises of Moses and Abraham, all of them come together in this chapter, in chapter 7. It's a bit like a, a, an hourglass, I suppose, the gathering of all the Old Testament promises and expectations, and then them launching out again towards the new covenant, towards Lord Jesus. That's why this is a mountaintop. And God's words, amazing, isn't it? How in just a few words, here there's I think 197 words from God, the longest, the longest speech from God since Sinai in the whole of the Old Testament. Here he makes these promises, the promises of the coming of the Son King. Now, we could call him the son of a king, that would be true. I've called him the son king because he is the picture of what a son should be. He is, in fact, the only son that is eternal. And he is the great king. So we're going to look back to Eden, forward to Revelation, and think about the son king. Let me give you a little bit of just background of where we are in the Old Testament. In First and Second Samuel, written about a thousand years before Christ, ten thousand, uh, no, sorry, thousand years before Christ, we see um, linking this to the book of Kings and Chronicles. It really describes a gap between judges, when Israel was run by judges, to when it's going to be run by kings. We see this transition, and Samuel was a really uh, important prophet. He was kind of, in some way, the first of many prophets to come. Over the next thousand years, there's going to be many, many different prophets. Samuel is kind of the first one in some ways. 
And actually, when we look in, in 1 Samuel 7 and 1 Samuel 9, he's a judge and a priest and a prophet. Doesn't that remind you of someone? He's not a king, but he's a, a judge, a priest, and a prophet. And so what's happening is we're seeing that this transition between the judges on, into the kings. And it's going to be Samuel who anoints the kings. He anoints Saul. Saul fails as a king. And he anoints David. And we have all this kind of this dispute. We have kingdom splitting, different tribes, ten tribes here, two tribes there and David brings all of the tribes of Israel together and you see right at the beginning of, of chapter 7 it says now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies this was going to be a time of peace a time of peace which had, had not existed in, until even probably back in the time of Joshua now in scripture I just want to remind you this is a bit of a geopolitical um, um, statement but it's good for us as we look geopolitically. Israel's purpose is to be a picture of who the Lord Jesus is. We see Israel in um, Exodus 4.22 as being called as my firstborn son. Israel's called God's son. And then we look at, at the temple and we look at the law and we look at Jesus says that he's going to fulfill all of those different things. Israel's called a vineyard. And do you remember in John, uh, John chapter 15, Jesus says, I'm the true vine. I am actually the vineyard that Israel pointed towards. So as we see this, as we see the picture of kings and judges and, and priests and prophets, we see pictures of who Jesus actually is. Israel are a typology, a shadow of Jesus to us. So as we see all of these things, when we see a king bringing peace, we think of an eternal peace that the Lord Jesus is going to bring as well. So this second Samuel, second Samuel chapter 7 is really important because of what it says and what's happened just before. And here's a couple of things I just want to point out just for the, the chapters before. In chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant is brought into Jerusalem. So the kingdom of Israel has been sort of, David's kingdom has been in Hebron. So now he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which to them was the presence of God, into Jerusalem. And setting up Jerusalem as now the place of where the king sits. Which king? The king of heaven. The Ark of the Covenant is the king of, that's God's presence with his people. And guess what? That's also where he's going to say, this is where I'm going to sit up, set up my earthly king as well, the king of David as well. So this ark is brought in to Jerusalem. And we see David dancing before it. He's so happy, right? And you probably all heard the story. But a couple of things that happened, right, in, in, this, in these preceding chapters. The story of Uzzah. And some of you might have heard this story and said, what? This is terrible. As they're bringing in the Ark of the Covenant faithfully, the, the, the cart wobbles and the ark is going to fall off. And Uzzah, faithfully, it seems, reaches out to hold the ark up. And guess what happens? The Lord strikes him down. So it's a picture of God's holiness, reminding us of what happened back at Exodus when we have a, a mountain that nobody could go on. So God is saying that I am the holy 
and righteous king. It's a picture of his holiness. I'm going to set up an earthly king, but I am the king of the universe and the only one who is pure and perfect and holy. And then we see uh, David's wife, uh, Michal, Michael, some people say. We see Michal or Michael who um, actually condemns David for what he did, for dancing with an ephod in celebration in front of the ark. And it says, it says in, uh, in chapter 6 that she despised him in her heart. And the last verse says, And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. So here we have David, who's going to be promised a son, and his wife, his first wife, his great love, is not going to have the child. Doesn't that remind you of Abraham and lots of stories before? So God's going to promise David a son, and yet his wife is not going to have a child. Do you remember the desire of every mother in Israel was to give birth to the Messiah? It was not going to be Michal, Michal. So that's the context for chapter 7. So as we come into it now, as we think about that, here we have God setting up his royal temple. And he's going to, here we have David who's saying, um, I need to set up a house for God in this place. So we, we start off, he talks to Nathan, and Nathan is, is a prophet. We're going to see much more of, of him later on as you, as you study, study Samuel. But it's going to be, it's going to be a place where not only God dwells, but where the earthly king dwells as well. And so um, Nathan encourages David, it says in those first verses, to do all that's on his heart. David says, I have a palace, but God doesn't. He says in, in, there in verse 2, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan then says to the king, go and do everything that's in your heart. Sounds very noble. He's living in a great place of cedar. Cedar was beauty and wealth and strength. That's what they built palaces off in those days. And probably the surrounding nations had these beautiful you know, temples which they worshipped their idols. And he's saying, our God's in a, in a tent. What's going on? I need to build something for him. So it sounds, it sounds uh, wonderful in, a, in many ways. And he says, I want to build him a house. And we see this word house throughout this chapter. I think it's mentioned seven or eight times, the word house. I want to build him a house. I live in a house, and I want to build him a house. God's going to come back in a second and say, you want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house. And so here we have, it seems quite noble. I want to build it. And think about it, a lot of, a lot of capitals in the world, right? You have, a, you have the palace. London has Buckingham Palace and has Westminster Abbey and and you know, so you, you see these kind of earthly kings. Um, I, I want to seek counsel from the from the heavenly king as well. So you see that Washington. We kind of see this 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 coming together of kind of earthly government uh, as well. Now Nathan's uh, Nathan's first time we see Nathan. Um, Nathan's going go do what you want. What's really funny is God goes Nathan, you got it wrong. Don't he, he shouldn't do that. So here we have. Nathan getting it wrong, but God now speaking to him in these 197 words, giving him this amazing promise, this amazing covenant. But he starts off, he reminds, he reminds David, he tells Nathan to tell David and remind him about who he is. 
He says, uh, he says, why would you build me a temple? Go and tell my servant, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Now this points them back to Exodus, the tabernacle. And the Ark of the Covenant was, was carried around through the wilderness in this tabernacle as well. But also the language is the language of Eden as well. Do you remember when God walked with Adam in the garden? That's the same word used here. It's only used very occasionally. The idea of moving, of God moving around is God walking. It's a relational walking around as well. He's telling even back then, when he built the cosmos and built Eden to be his temple, that's the place. He built it so that he could dwell and walk with his people. But it says in Acts, it says in um, Acts 7, Acts 17, even the highest heavens cannot contain our God. He does not dwell in houses made with hands because he doesn't depend on us. God doesn't live in a temple. That's a picture of him dwelling with us. The incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus is the temple who comes to walk with his people, to be with us, to live in his church, by his Holy Spirit, to live within his people. The Lord Jesus is this fulfillment of all the temples in scripture, the fulfillment of even Eden. And he reminds David about his special calling as well. He says, uh, um, therefore, verse 6, go and take, thou shalt say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. So he uses an interesting name here. This is his military name. This is his, the armies of heaven, which is really interesting. He said, I walked with you. But again, he's saying, I'm the Lord of all the armies of heaven. He's, 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 again, showing his, his power and his, who's the real king of the universe? And he's pointing to Christ, the king of kings and the Lord of lords as well. I took you, and he says, my servant David. That's a term of great endearment as well. There actually aren't many people called his servant. Israel's called his servant. Um, and, and maybe two or three other people are called his servant. Moses, I think Joshua called his servant. Only used for like three or four people. It's a, it's a term of great endearment. So he says, um, I, I sh you should say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following sheep that you should be prince of my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. He's reminding David that all the victories that he's had and you, there's many leading up to this point. How are they at a point of peace? It's because David's had victory over all of his enemies. What's our real peace? Victory over all of our enemies. The enemy of death. The enemy of Satan. The Lord Jesus is going to come and take us from all, deliver us from all of our enemies. But he's pointing around. He's, he's saying that I'm the one who gave you all of those victories. And he's pointing back to actually uh, Joseph. It's the same words that were used in Genesis when he described Joseph. It, all, it says like multiple times uh, when it's speaking about the story of Joseph that Joseph um, was successful because God was with him. Joseph was successful because God is with him. So it's this wonderful 
a reminder. He's taken him back to Eden and back to Exodus and back to Joseph and showing where he is in the story of um, redemption as well. He reminds him too of his presence that actually God has walked with David as he's going to walk with his people. So here we see him then go on and he's going to say he promises to make David's name great and to plant Israel in a place where they won't be disturbed and they won't be afflicted by violent men, a place of rest. When we hear about the place of rest, we can't help thinking of the Sabbath rest, of the new heaven and the new earth. But this was, always, this was also promises from in Deuteronomy that when, um, when Israel was going to be delivered from their enemies, God would find a place for them and he would live there and dwell with them. It's a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 12, chapter 8. Rest, uh, chapter 12, verse 8. Rest, inheritance, worship, God's presence, deliverance from your enemies. So he's going to say, and I've been with you wherever you are. And I'll appoint a place in verse 10. I'll appoint a place for my people Israel. We'll plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And he's saying that's, that's never happened before. At those times with all the nations around them, this was a great promise, wasn't it? And don't you, again, don't you see echoes of the Abrahamic covenant where I'm going to, I'm going to give you a land I'm going to give you a place in which you will be a blessing and in which I can bless you as well and where I will dwell with you as well. The Abrahamic um, covenant of Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 17 repeated to Jacob is in this, in this passage as well. So at this point, God in his words to David have been pointing them to the past, but then he goes and says he takes them into the future. He says in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. It should come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. He promises a king and a son from the line of David. He talks about offspring. It's the same word as used as seed in other parts of scripture. And Daniel talked about the seed, the seed coming back from early in Genesis. This is seed, and we follow this, this line of the seed all the way throughout the scripture. So who is this son? Who is this son that he's saying, I'm going to raise up a son for you? Well, as we stand on the mountain, we're going to see a couple of peaks. We're going to see the short-term fulfillment of that. And then we're going to see the real son the eternal son, the son of God who's going to fulfill this completely. If you look at what he says, if you look at the short term, he says, I will be a father, he should be my son. Listen to this. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart for him. So he's saying, he's talking about Solomon. Solomon is going to be David's next son. Not through Michal, but guess who? Through Bathsheba, who he commits adultery with, which is remarkable, isn't it? That's later on in, in Samuel. So here we see that Solomon, and Solomon's actually going to be the one who's going to build the temple. David is not allowed to build this temple. 
So he's going to say no to David, but yes to Solomon in building this earthly temple, Solomon's temple. But he's going to say, he's actually going to say, this is the beginning of the line of kings and many kings are going to follow from that. This whole line of kings from now into, for the rest of the Old Testament, we're going to see all of these kings. The trouble is, as it says, when he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of man. Now, Solomon doesn't do well. He does well, but he doesn't do well. He has sort of a checkered life. He falls short of the expectations of a king that are laid out in Deuteronomy, which says you shouldn't have lots of horses. You shouldn't have lots of wives. You shouldn't have lots of gold and silver. Guess what Solomon did? He did all of those things. He was a faithful king and an unfaithful king. He kind of, he, he, he waved between those, those different things. So Solomon was part of this story. We see Solomon's great wisdom in Proverbs. We see his vexation in Ecclesiastes. Maybe at the beginning and the end of his, his reign. He had a life probably like that. Isn't that like us? Sometimes we start faithfully, end unfaithfully, but God is faithful, isn't he? So here we see it's so Solomon is certainly part of it. But you're good Bereans. We should go back and read that because there's some parts of this that actually Solomon cannot fulfill. He says in verse uh, 13, he, sh- uh, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. And he goes on. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it away from Saul when I put away from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. So we have a couple of things here. We have eternity and we have sonship. And these are big themes all the way throughout scripture. If you're going to set up, take David and take Solomon and have an eternal kingdom, how are you going to have an eternal kingdom from a man, from Solomon? You're going to have to have another king, and then another king, and then another king, and another king, and another king for forever. If you look in the history of Israel, that didn't really happen. Think about the exiles when they got taken to Babylon, they got happened to Assyria. Look at Israel now. No king. There's not an eternal king. The other way for you to have an eternal king is to have a king who lives forever, who doesn't die who is perfect, who is sinless. There's only one king who did that. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. The true son of David is actually the Lord Jesus himself. He is the great son king. Not just the son of a king, he is the son and the king who lives forever. And actually as you go throughout scripture, you start to see this increasing recognition of that as the earthly kings fail the heavenly king coming think about isaiah chapter 9 this was this was a thousand years bc when we look at 8th century bc we see isaiah 9 verse 6 to 7 you're used to that as a christmas um sermon wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace to hear those words that's the sun king the messiah that's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. If we go to the 6th century BC, we see in Ezekiel 34, um, God's talking about all the shepherds. 
and all the shepherds that are failing, all the kings that are failing, all the priests that are failing. And he said, I will be the shepherd of my people. And in the end, in, and then he says, I'm going to raise up a shepherd of the line of David, he says in Ezekiel. David appears, the name David is appearing all the way throughout scripture. The son of David is God himself looking after his sheep. He's the only one that can do that and the only one who can do that eternally. Jesus Christ himself, son of David, son of God. And we see that, we see that truth also described in the New Testament, don't we? In Luke 1, when Mary uh, speaks in verse 21 to 23, she, she, she recognizes this is the line of David. The genealogies of, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6 to 7, in Luke 3, we see the Davidic line. So we see Jesus actually coming from the body of David, but being the eternal king. Paul recognizes that. Let me just read uh, this interesting passage. It's funny when you sort of, you know when you, you see something and haven't seen it before and then you keep on reading it? I was looking for David and he's everywhere. Listen to this. This is Romans chapter one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. So here, Paul recognizes who Jesus is, the son of David. And all the way through, we can go into Galatians, we can go into Revelation and see him. We read that scripture from Revelation 5 for our confession today, that the only one who was worthy to open the scroll was the son of David. And Jesus' very last words in Revelation, he says, I'm the son of David. Jesus himself says he's the son of David. This is from Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Revelation closes with him being the son of David. So this concept of sonship is, always, is also really important. He is the true son. We might say, we might think of sons as being uh, our offspring, if that makes sense, being uh, ontological, being um, paternal um, and maternal. But actually, sonship in scripture is something different. In, um, in the Old Testament, it was really related to what you do. And think about son of a carpenter. Uh, and when they used son, it's son of Abraham. It's like, that's who you're like. You're like that person. You do what that person does. So sonship was kind of, so you could, you could adopt a son as well. And they'd be your son uh, as well. So sonship was much, much more than sort of ontological in a way. It was vocational. It was functional. Son of a king meant you're a king. You're going to act out. You're going to be a king. You're going to reign like David. The son of David was to reign um, righteously, to reign with integrity, to reign with equity as well. That's what David's line was going to do. Israel was meant to be God's son, but failed in many, many ways. He didn't bear Israel, but they were to be him. They were to be a picture of who he is. You're going to see in just a second, we're to, we are sons of God. We're to be his image bearers. And probably one of the great passages of that is John chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 1, in Hebrews chapter 1, we see um, that the Son is the radiance of God's glory. 
He's the exact representation of his being. He's described as the son there. But listen to just John chapter 5. Let me just read a couple of things from John chapter 5 for you. What's it? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Okay, just looking for John. John chapter 5, and we're going to see uh, in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. The father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So the whole of John chapter 5 on then talks about what the son does. The son does exactly what the father does. There's only one son that can do that. That's the Lord Jesus, the eternal son, father, son, and spirit, who came to be the son of David, but he was always the son because he was always the exact representation of the father in heaven. So Jesus is the perfect representation of the father and the only son. So is that important? Is that important? If he's the son, we just said that's, that's the promise of the son. That's who the son is. What does that mean for us? It means we're to believe in the son. You might say, well, that doesn't, does that really matter whether I believe in the son? If you look throughout scripture, it really matters whether you believe in the son of David. When we look throughout New Testament, there are, there are three types of people in the New Testament. Those who believe in him, those who don't believe in him, and those who doubt who he is. And actually, we, so we see all these individuals. We see two blind men on the street in Matthew chapter 9. And they cry out, son of David, have mercy upon me. They're on the street. Jesus takes them inside and said, what did you say? And then he gives them sight because they cried out for mercy. We see too, we see a, a woman who uh, um, her, her, her child is, is demon possessed. Son of David, have mercy upon me. And whenever somebody cries out for mercy to the son of David, guess what? God gives them mercy. The principle from kind of this, this section in belief is that, is that how you receive Jesus is how you will experience him. If you receive it, if you cry out to mercy for him, you'll receive mercy. If you reject him, he rejects you. That's a, 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 a sobering thought, isn't it? But we see that, we actually see that with the Pharisees. The great judgment on the Pharisees was they rejected the son of David, which is kind of remarkable. They rejected him as the son of David. If you go to just Matthew chapter 22, and here we have, we have uh, the Pharisees have come to trap David, and, he, and we have this great commandment, and the Pharisees and Sadducees say, hey, what's the great commandment in, in verse uh, 34? And he says, well, you know, to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We know that. And then he goes straight, then he said, whose son is the Christ? Son of David is messianic. Christ means the Messiah. And, they, and then he actually shows that he's the Messiah. It's not really David, it's he's the Messiah. And it says right at the end of them, he says, and no one was able to answer him for a word. Not from that day did anyone dare to ask him more questions. And look at chapter 23, the woes to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the destruction of the temple in 24, the end of the age, the coming of the son of man, the lesson of the fig tree, all of, the, all of this teaching after that is judgment on them because they rejected him as the son of David. If you reject him, he rejects you. The Messiah is also a great judge. 
His mercy is based on the fact that he came to die for us. He came as the son incarnate at Christmas, what we, what we celebrate at Christmas. He came, but he came to live a perfect life, to die for the forgiveness of our sins. And he was raised again with victory over death, has ascended into heaven, sitting as the king, the great king. And now he says, believe on me. Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry. We're to love him. We're to live with him. So which group are you in today? You will experience the Lord Jesus Christ, the son king, in the manner in which you see him. The manner in which you believe in him. There was one group I won't cover. John the Baptist had some doubts about who he was. He said, are you the Christ? He was in prison. He was troubled. He was in doubts. And he was, he was questioning whether he was the son of David, the Messiah. And Jesus graciously um, comforted him in his doubts and said, yes, look, I'm fulfilling these prophecies. It is me. So what does that mean for us? The last section then, just briefly, is that the most amazing thing in scripture, as you believe in him, you become sons of the Son King. So the word son is used for us as his people. We're adopted into his family, it says in, in, uh, in John. For those who believed, he gave the right to become children of God. But because we are, we, we are brought in by faith, we experience um, Coming into his family, John 1.12, to all who receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In Galatians 4.6, you are sons of God, um, it says, achieved by his spirit, giving you a new birth within you as well. And it says in Revelation as well, Revelation 21, and he who is seated on the throne, uh, there are those, uh, he conquers, it says, and for those he will give a heritage, those who believe in him, I will be his God and I will be his God and he will be my son as well. So Jesus is the son, the image bearer, the image reflector. That's our job as sons of the living God, to be image bearers. Just as Israel was meant to be a faithful son and Solomon was meant to be a faithful son, we, as his people, saved by grace through faith, are his sons. Men and women, your sons of the living God. Pictures of the great son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the son of David, uh, the son king, and the only one who could fulfill these prophecies. We thank you for your wonderful word that revives our souls, that makes, wise us, makes us wise when we're simple, rejoices our hearts, enlightens our eyes, and we know your word, Lord, like the son of David, endures forever. Help us be faithful sons, Lord, image bearers to a dying world, and may we point all those who are broken uh, who are lame, uh, who need uh, the blessing of the son of David. May they cry out to you for mercy and may we do that in our own lives today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.